We're going to be reading from God's Word. We're going to hear him speak to us from Revelation 6 and 7. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked. And there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A kilogram of wheat for a day's wages, and three kilograms of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a quarter of the earth to kill by the sword, famine and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The kings, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given the power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea, the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard 
the number of who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down, their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their, their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray for God's help as we look at his word together. Father God, please would you help us to understand your word, help us to see what you are telling us that we might understand and have confidence to live lives not marked by fear, but lives marked by faith. Trust that you are good and you are in control. Amen. Spread of coronavirus, getting quite scary for some people. Uh, the unimaginable misery of the civil wars in Syria and Yemen. The ongoing migrant crisis flowing again and again across Europe. The rise, the fall, and now it seems the rise again of Islamic State. The spread of terror across the Sahel in Northern Africa and the steady collapse of sensible politics in the West. What do you see as you look at the news? What do you make of all of this as you look out in the world? I guess the Christians here will see other things that trouble us. Uh, across Africa, a rising tide of lethal violence seems to be spreading southwards. In Burkina Faso and Cameroon, increasing numbers of churches are being torched and Christians slaughtered, and nothing seems to happen at all. Uh, the state-sponsored strangling of church freedoms in China and North Korea continues to ratchet up. The former Soviet republics are still places where it's very difficult 
to be a Christian. And in the West, there's increasing hostility and decreasing church attendance. As we look out around the world, what do we see? What do you conclude is going on? It's very, very easy to look around the world and and see only merciless tyranny and spiraling chaos and think that is really what's going on. Just tyranny and chaos. It's easy if we see that to, well, if we're Christians, to become quite fearful, actually, of what's going on. We can become timid and intimidated by what's happening. We have this sort of theoretical idea of a great God, an almighty God, but he's up there. But he does seem to be of very little practical value to his people as we go about life down here. And so we end up just withdrawing a bit and living mediocre lives, hedging our bets, never really living for God, never taking any risks for him because we're quite afraid if we're honest. Well, Revelation 6 tells us that behind the seeming chaos of war and famine and coups and behind the persecution of God's people, behind it all, God is working out his perfect purposes. The lamb who is slain has begun to reign and that reign is not just on a throne in heaven. It's a a reign that's worked out as wars rage, as famines ravage, as politicians bicker, In all the chaos of life down here, the large-scale chaos of nations and the small-scale chaos of our own families and lives, God is at work saving a countless multitude and making sure that every single one of us who trusts in God will make it safely to heaven. That's the central message. Now, uh, Revelation 5 taught us that the lamb who was slain had begun to reign, and chapter 6 is a reassurance, really, that that reign is not stuck up there. He reigns over what's happening on earth as well. He oversees human history and he is at work to bring justice and save his people. History is his story. Our times are in his hands. If you like, the the, the sort of headline is this, Christ, not chaos, rules over human history. That's really the headline. Christ, not chaos, rules over human history. Look, before we get in there, uh, apocalypse now or then, there, there are arguments and debates, as I'm sure many of you will know, about the timings in Revelation. Um, Lots of debates about the dates. And in particular, once we get into this detail, as we have of chapters 4 to 20, what period of history is it speaking about? Uh, There are four uh, words there on your sheet. Let me uh, briefly say, preterist is uh, the idea that actually it's really all about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. That's what Revelation is really telling us about. Uh, the historicist position says it's a, mainly about events after AD 70, but um, things that were fulfilled in the first few hundred years of the church's life. The futurist position says, well, actually, no, it's, it's stuff that's way in the future, just before Jesus returns. It's the, all the kind of left behind stuff. Uh, it's stuff that's going to happen just then before Jesus returns. I'm most convinced by the idealist position, which is the... Um, that says, look, Revelation, it portrays the conflict that runs throughout church history since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the conflict between the devil and God, a conflict that's been going through um, all, of, all of time since Genesis 3.16 set it up, the conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And there might be particular intense 
things and, and particular times when it's, it's worse. And there might be things in Revelation that, 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 that are really, they, they point very strongly to one or two things in history. But, but it's basically saying this is what history will be like to a greater or lesser extent. And I think that's the most convincing position. Now, just as important to understand as we work through chapters 4 to 16 is it's not a chronological progression of one thing after another. Uh, Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven plagues, seven bowls of wrath. Rather, it's like uh, Pulp Fiction, if you've ever seen the film. So the film runs. It doesn't run chronologically from beginning to end. It runs a number of times through, but each time you see the film effectively from the perspective of a different character. And that's what goes on in Revelation. We see the same events of world history, the same realities, but told in different ways, from different perspectives, to accentuate, to show us different truths. Okay, let's get into the detail. Two chapters to get through. Firstly, history is ruled by Christ, not chaos. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A kilogram of wheat for a day's wages, and three kilograms of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a quarter of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, those of us in our 30s, or a little bit north of 30, uh, grew up in a period of, in the West of unprecedented peace and security. But the illusion that life was really secure was rather shattered by the terrorist attack of September the 11th. It wasn't just the Twin Towers that fell down that day. The whole, the whole facade of Western security rather just dissolved. And we realized, actually, we weren't as safe as we thought. But the truth is that for most people in most eras of human history, tyranny and chaos have trampled their ways like two great boots right the way across human history with depressing regularity. And here, that reality is depicted in the vivid, nightmarish terms of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, why does John depict things in this weird imagery? Why not just say there's going to be a war? Why talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse? I think it's because sometimes non-literal imagery is just more powerful. So in April 1937, uh, Franco um, got his fascist allies to bomb the civilian town of La Guernica in Spain. And Picasso was utterly appalled by what he saw. And he depicted the horror of what happened there. But he didn't paint it normally. He painted it in this famous picture, La Guernica. And somehow, the, the cubist sort of weird stretching of reality and the and the wrenched images and the non-realist nature of it makes it more visceral 
more shocking, more striking than a literal depiction could have been. And in some ways, that's what's going on here as John describes things in Revelation. It's, it's not quite, but it's like a cubist take on reality. It shocks, it arrests in a way a literal description probably wouldn't. Okay, so what does it all mean? Well, the first rider, we're told, is a conqueror, verse 2. And he's then followed by conflict, the blood-red horse who causes people to kill. Then comes famine. Uh, the prices there that are shouted out, it's basically between 8 and 16 times normal prices. So this is uh, what happens in a famine. And lastly, the corpse-colored horse whose rider is death. I think John is being deeply unromantic about the great ones of history whose statues you see as you drive around London. Whenever a human leader rides out to win an empire bent on conquest, the other three horses always follow. Tyranny, chaos, famine, suffering, and death always follow in the wake of the great conquerors. But what John wants to show us here is that in spite of appearances, the opening of the seals has not unleashed uncontrollable chaos. The scroll is not Pandora's box. You look again and you see the lamb is in total control of what happens here. Uh, the riders are, don't escape. They're summoned. Come. Every single one of them is summoned. And they're given their power. The first is given his crown. The second is given the power to take peace. If you look down, the third is told exactly what will happen in the famine and what prices will be. And the fourth is given the power to bring death to a quarter of the earth. In other words, behind what is seen, the lamb is completely in control of the finest details of all that seems chaotic down here. Let me illustrate with something I know an awful lot about, tapestry. Uh, so Corrie ten Boom was a, a Dutch Christian whose family sheltered Jews from the Nazis in the Second World War. And eventually they were uh, betrayed and discovered and sent to Ravensbrück prison, a concentration camp, uh, where they suffered just unspeakable horrors. And her beloved sister, uh, Betsy, was, uh, was killed. And Corrie should have died herself, but an administrative mess up meant that she was released rather than killed a week before they were going to come and, uh, and kill her. And as she reflected on just the, the chaos and the tyranny that she lived through at that time, as she made this tapestry, it's not the prettiest, is it? But that was what she lived through. It's just a complete mess. That's what life was, living at that time. But actually, uh, she made the tapestry twice, and she always displayed it like this, once like that, and then once the other side, the crown. And her point was very, very simple, that although in our lived experience, for her especially, it feels like just chaos reigns, the four horsemen of the apocalypse riding mad over the earth. On the other side, there is the crown. The lamb is working out his perfect golden rule. God sees the other side. And so uh, she famously said, when, when you look at the world... <laughs> You get distressed. When you look at yourself, you probably end up depressed. But when you look at God, then, then you find rest. She wove the crown to show Christ was ruling over the chaos, weaving his beautiful pattern through all the chaos and tyranny of human history. And that's what we see in Revelation 6. Okay, 
But what of God's people in this? What is happening to God's people? That's what we see in the second half. As we see, our history is heading for Christ's judgment, not just endless cycles. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they'd maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, the word used for kill in verse 4 Uh, the slaughter that's unleashed by the second horse, is the same as the word for slain in verse 9. And it's a word John only ever uses for the martyrdom, the slaughter of Christians for their faith. And it's so often that when uh, war and famine have torn up the social fabric that persecution comes most heavily on the people of God. You see that in the civil war in Syria. You saw that in Iraq. You see that in Afghanistan. When war and famine come, so often that's the time that persecution gets most brutal as people are allowed to do what they like, they think, to God's people. Now, people dispute the precise figures, but for the last, goodness knows, 75 years certainly, every single year, there have been more Christians killed for their faith than any other faith group. It's just a reality. And the Christians of John's day, they knew all about this. In AD 64, uh, when Rome suffered its terrible fire, Nero just scapegoated the Christians, probably to divert attention from what he was doing. And Tacitus records in his annals, the result of this imperial scapegoating was large numbers of Christians dressed in wild animal skins were torn to pieces by dogs for the entertainment of the crowds, or crucified, or made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight. They may have been slaughtered, but extraordinarily, they were not defeated. Verses 9 to 10 show that their souls live in heaven long after their bodies have been destroyed. Their souls live in heaven awaiting new bodies for the new creation when the Lord Jesus returns. And so in the meantime, they pray to God from under the altar. Now, I don't think we're to get too hung up on the... uh, the physical description of heaven, you know, that there is a, a temple and that all these millions of, of souls are crammed under some gigantic altar. It's John's, I think he's using the, the Old Testament imagery that's familiar to him as a Jew and, and using it figuratively to describe the new creation. It might be literal, but I'm not sure. Now, what they cry for is justice. That word avenge our blood is is unhelpful because in our minds, we think avenge, we think sort of Hollywood movie, take justice into your own hands and use a machine gun. And it's, it's bloodthirsty and it's brutal. But that's not what the word actually means. It's, it's a word for vindicate those who are right and punish justly those who are wrong. That's what it means. Vindicate those who are in the right and punish justly those who are wicked and in the wrong. And they know God will do that. Verse 11, then each of them was told, was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I don't know what exactly furniture there is in heaven, but one thing that there definitely is is a big clock and it is counting down, tick, 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 tick. Counting down. I don't know what number it's on right now, but it's counting down. It's counting down. 
and one day it will reach zero and God will return and judge. In the meantime, he gives the martyrs robes of white. This is in part actually an answer to the prayer. They've said, avenge our blood, vindicate us. And the robes of white, they signify righteousness. We've seen that throughout Revelation. And so he's saying, look, the fact that you suffered isn't a sign that, well, I didn't really love you. It's not a sign that uh, actually, well, your bad life signifies you are bad people. No, they're given robes of white saying, no, no, you are the righteous ones. You are the ones who are holy. You are the ones whom God approves of. And you are the ones who will reign in eternity. They're declared righteous by God. They're vindicated with these robes. And then the sixth seal, it takes us forward to the moment when finally the countdown clock hits zero. Verse 12, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The world is not just going to cycle along endlessly. God's clock will hit zero, and when it does, it's extraordinary. God created the whole universe with a word. He'll speak another word, and it'll just stop. The sun will cease to shine. Stars will drop out of the sky like fruit from a tree. I mean, it's an amazing image. And then he'll just fold up and put away reality like a, a movie set after filming's finished. Stunning image of what God will do. And then we get a terrifying image. What will happen to those who've persecuted and ill-treated God's people, those who are faithful to him? There aren't many verses in the Bible that are more chilling than these. Verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? History will end with the judgment, the wrath of the Lamb. It'll be a day of great joy and relief for those who have suffered for him and longed for justice. But for those who've mocked God, mistreated his people, murdered them even, it'll be a day of terror and eternal horror. To fall into the hands of the God who is love when you have hated and murdered will be a terrible, terrible thing. An earthly position and power will be no good to you on that day. Kings and princes, do you see, they're just as exposed as slaves before the wrath of the Lamb. I went to um, the zoo yesterday. I got to find some way to, to entertain the, the small fry. And uh, London Zoo's great. And uh, usually the, the exciting animals are asleep, is, is the, the way it goes at zoos. Um, and uh, you have to tell the kids off for hitting the glass just to try and get some reaction. But uh, not yesterday, actually. The, the tigers were out. And uh, just as we got there, um, noses pressed up against the glass, the, the big, the big alpha male tiger just came lumbering past. It's about eye height with me. I mean, they are just 
uh, they take a good look at the small children as well. And uh, there's a sign that says, this is what the tiger sees when he looks at you. And it's a picture of legs uh, with a large uh, lamb chop on top of it. And they say, that's what they're seeing. Uh, you do not get into the tiger enclosure. It is, <laughs> tigers eat people. That's what they do. But as frightening as it would be to get into the enclosure when that big male is lumbering around, there is something much, much, much more frightening. And that would be to get into the enclosure and to get between the mum and her cubs. The mum's smaller than the male. But my goodness, you do not want to be between the mum and her cubs. Then you'll see serious, serious danger. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the gentlest, most gracious man who ever walked this earth, kind to sinners, gentle with those who struggle and stumble. But if you have abused, mistreated, hated, mocked those he died for, you do not want to be on the wrong side of the wrath of the Lamb. It's Christ, not chaos, that rules history. And one day he will judge. As we move into chapter 7, we, uh, we turn the focus onto God's own people. And we see two things. God will preserve every single one of them and God will save a great numberless multitude. So God will judge the persecutors at the end of chapter 6, but what hope and comfort for his people in the here and now? And again and again, what John will do in Revelation is he'll show us the future reward and the present resources to keep us going. The future reward and the present resources to keep us going. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind blowing on the land or on the sea. Uh, Now, after this, not the next thing that happened, but the next thing that he sees. The, the holding back of the winds. In uh, the, the Old Testament background for the four horsemen of the apocalypse is in Zechariah, in his prophecy. And he talks about them in one section in Zechariah 6 as the four horsemen, and then a moment later as the four winds that blow through with judgment. So when he says here, um, the, uh, the angels hold back the four winds, I think he's talking about the restraining of the four horsemen of judgment before they go out. So this is, he's saying before they ride out to bring devastation to the earth, before they ride out, something has to happen. Verse 2, I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given the power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until... We put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Okay, what's the seal? Who are the 144,000? Now, seals were used for a number of things, uh, but most significantly, they're a stamp or a mark of ownership. And so I think most sensibly, this seal is just the Holy Spirit. He is called the promised seal who guarantees our eternal inheritance in Ephesians 1.13, similarly in Ephesians 4.30 and 2 Corinthians 1.22. He is the seal who guarantees our inheritance. Having the Holy Spirit is the seal that guarantees we are God's people, and it's the seal that guarantees we'll share in Jesus' eternal inheritance and his eternal happiness. Okay, so that's the seal. Now, who are the 144,000? 
uh, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. And interestingly, Jesus' tribe, Judah, is listed first, although he was the fourth son. Now, I don't think this is limited to all Jews who have put their trust in Jesus, because more than that have believed in Jesus through history, or to a particular category of believers um, from the Israelite nation. I think it is talking figuratively about God's people fulfilling the Old Testament tribes of Israel. And we've already seen in Revelation 2.9, he talks about um, those, who, those who persecute the church as not being true Jews. Uh, and in Romans 9.6, Paul famously says, uh, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So the, the Christians spoke about um, the, the people of God as being the Old Testament faithful Israelites and the New Testament, those who trust in the fulfillment of the promises given to Israel, all of the people of God, Jew and Gentile together, those who believed in the promises and those who believe in the fulfillment of the promises in Jesus. Okay, so why 144,000? Well, numbers, as we've seen, are really significant in Revelation. And 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel, and 12 is the number of the apostles. And 1,000 is, uh, is in Greek, a, a big number. Um, well done. Uh, it's a big number. So 12 times 1,000 from each of the 12 tribes. It's, it, it's 144,000. It's a number of perfection, of completion. It's saying every single one of those whom God has chosen. That's the point. It's precision. God doesn't just save nations and tribes and peoples. He saves individuals. There is a precision to God's plan. You know, 99% is a pretty good mark. God doesn't think so. 99% is not good enough for him. In the, in the parable that Jesus tells, he says, there's 100 sheep and 99 of them have been counted in. He doesn't say, you know what? That's a pretty high mark at most universities. He he leaves the 99 and goes and searches out the one. And this is what we're seeing here. There is precision in God's plan, this perfect number, the full perfect number of all those he's selected. There is no person who is so unimportant, so small, so insignificant in the mind of God that they could just get lost or, or missed because of an um, accounting error. That will not happen. God knows the name of every single one of those who will be in the new creation. God knows the name that is stamped on your entry ticket. He knows the number of ticket that you have. 144,000, perfect, full, complete, precise. But... <laughs> The danger of 144,000 is it sounds like quite a small amount for all of human history. And so we see the other side of the coin in the second half of chapter 7, as we see God save a great numberless multitude. So verse 9, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God. I don't think this is another group. 
I think this is simply another perspective on the same reality. John's saying, uh, God will save the perfect full number, exactly who he intended, 144,000, the fulfillment of the promised people of God. But that fulfilled perfect number will be a completely uncountable multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Now, question, why stress that at this point in Revelation? Uh, Why not just emphasize God won't lose any single one of his people? Isn't that what we need to hear when chaos and tyranny are terrifying us? Well, actually, I think we do need the encouragement of the second half of verse of chapter 7. You need to know the new creation is not going to be a half-empty disappointment. It is going to be full, thrillingly full. Not full like a sweaty tube carriage on a sort of February morning when it's a little bit uncomfortable and you're in somebody's armpit. Not that kind of full. Full like a party where everybody you invited has come. Full like a sports event when every seat in the stadium is taken and the atmosphere is just crackling with electricity. The Lamb's victory will mean heaven is a glorious, thriving multitude, a riot of different colors and languages and accents. It will be full and exciting. It'll be the greatest party in all of history. And it'll be God's perfect number. Now, verses 9 to 12, I think, describe heaven at this moment in time. The souls of those who trust in Jesus have died, but they're gathered round, and they're praising the Lamb. By contrast, I think 13 to 17 kind of merge the future and the present as they pick up on Isaiah's prophecies of the new creation. Uh, Chapter 6 says, uh, the Lamb rules life now. And chapter 7, this bit says, and the Lamb will be the center of heaven's delights. Verse 13, then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where'd they come from? I answered, sir, you know. He said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. White robes of righteousness. How do filthy sinners get to be pure and spotless? What could ever wash away stains as deep and as dark as those on our souls? Blood. (laughs) That's what does it. Blood washes us white. The blood of Jesus. Verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the reward that awaits. That's what makes it worth standing up for God. That's what makes it worth keeping going. We've had blood that washes white. Now, verse 17, we get a lamb who is a shepherd. The one who protects us with his presence and provides for our every need. Leads us to springs of living water. And the one who will wipe away tears from every face. In other words, he will end everything that is sad or corrupt or painful or disappointing. He will end it. He will wipe away the tears and we will never cry again. So how should we live in the light of this? Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. 
Uh, Three things. Don't fear the chaos in the world. Don't fear the chaos in your life and live boldly in the chaos. Firstly, don't fear the chaos in the world. The lamb who was slain has begun to reign. And whatever you see on the news tomorrow morning, tell yourself, it is Christ, not chaos, that rules the world. Whatever you see on the news. We're challenged in Revelation 4 to 11. What do you see? What do you see? And we have to train ourselves not to see what everybody else sees, but also to remember the other side of the tapestry. The lamb is working out his rule. God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The whole span of human history takes place in the palm of his hand. He sees, he controls, and he loves. And he rules even over wicked people. Dictators don't have ultimate power. Satan is on a leash, and God is working out his purposes. So don't live in fear of what's going on in the world. Instead, speak to the one who is truly in control on his throne in heaven. Pray. Pray like the saints under the altar that God would bring his justice and preserve his people. And pray especially for the persecuted church. Pray for those in Mauritania, in Burkina Faso, in Cameroon, in China, in North Korea, in Tunisia, in Pakistan, Uzbekistan, and the Maldives. Pray for the persecuted church around the world. If you've never done it before, uh, you can start with open doors. They're, they're a great first, um, first step for good information on the persecuted church. Pray for them to the one who reigns. Don't fear the chaos in this world. Secondly, don't fear the chaos in your life. Uh, God is at work ruling over the big, hairy events of history. He's also at work in the details of your life down here. And he's with you through the chaotic events of your life. I guess few of us will have Daniel's experience of living through coups and chaos and gunfire and explosions. But it can feel like there's plenty of chaos in our lives as it is. Some of the relationships that we've been in. Uh, the sickness that trashes our plans and expectation. Uh, the spiraling debt and uncertainties over work that can lead to utter chaos in our finances. And then there are difficulties and opposition that we know for following Jesus. But there are no accidents and there are no mistakes with God. And he is in control of every detail. He sees, he cares, and he is at work. And his unseen hand is bringing you home. So don't live in fear. The lamb is on the throne. Instead, thirdly, live boldly as lights in chaotic darkness. See, the people that we live with, the people that we work with, the people that we love, they also live in an at times depressing, chaotic world. The difference is, for those who don't know Christ, they have no hope in the chaos. We do. We know there's a loving God in control of it. And we need to share that hope with them. We need to live in a way which witnesses to the truth of it, that shows by our lives that we're not afraid. That we're not desperately trying to cling to security and flee from the danger. We're not afraid because we know the one who reigns and we know his reward. And we need to speak with our lips of the hope that is in Christ. Because the world needs, the world needs to know that Christ, not chaos, rules over history. Let's pray. Our Father, the visions of this chapter are terrifying in many ways and troubling. We... We're left with many questions as we, as we wonder why you allow uh, this chaos uh, to, 
to be unleashed on the world and, and how it can be that this is how your purposes are worked out. But we thank you that the lamb is on the throne. We thank you that he is working out his perfect purposes, that he will bring justice, that he will preserve every single one of his people and that he is gathering a great, enormous, numberless multitude to live a life of praise that never ceases. Help us to trust. Help us to hold on. And help us to live lives that aren't marked by fear, but by a godly confidence in the Lamb who reigns. Amen.